All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, in case I haven't met you yet, my name is Russell Balicki, and I'm one of the members here at Delray. Um, and uh, it's an honor to be up here before you this morning talking about um, the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. It's been a great study for me, and I hope it will be encouraging for you this morning. Um, so we've recently been studying about how man relates to God after the fall. Um, we've considered the fall's effect on humanity, and in our last two lessons, we've also considered how uh, God's eternal plan has been one of uh, redemption and reconciliation. Uh, and so today, what we're going to be talking about is how does God actually go about implementing this plan of redemption and reconciliation? And uh, what we'll see is that he's uh, entered into a covenant uh, with man, and that this is uh, mediated through Christ, and, and uh, ultimately, notwithstanding humanity's sinfulness and rebellion, God has reached out across the void that man created by sin uh, and has, has offered salvation to us. Um, and it's, I think, natural for us to associate this with Christ and appropriate for us to do that because Christ is the way that we are made right with God and he's the, he is the sacrifice that allows that to happen. But when we actually think about when this covenant was established, it goes back much further than the Incarnation. Um, and that's what we're going to be studying today is that God actually had this plan in motion uh, ever since the fall. I mean, this, the, the entire plan of re- redemption and reconciliation was eternal, but God had this covenant in place as soon as the fall had happened. So that's what we're going to be studying today and see how God has covenanted with man since the fall to redeem man from the f- effects of the fall. So next week, uh, Josh is going to be talking about um, the covenant of grace after Christ comes. Uh, and we're also going to have a, a lesson devoted specifically to talking about the continuity of the law from the Old Testament um, and how that relates to the New Testament. So, but today we're going to be focusing specifically on God's covenant of grace with man uh, immediately after the fall, before Christ comes. Um, and so our big idea today, I think it's on the sheet there, is uh, even before sending Christ, God covenanted to redeem people from the fall and to reconcile them to himself by his grace and through faith in his promises. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, Let's begin with prayer. Um, Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you uh, that we can come uh, and study your word. Thank you for just the grace that is even in that, that we have your revealed word and that we can learn about you and and know you and and come to you, Lord. Uh, Thank you for the way that you've been working out redemption and reconciliation uh, through covenants. Thank you for your faithfulness to them. And I pray that you would uh, just guide our study this morning, that you would be honored in what we uh, do and say. And uh, so we would come away just with a, uh, just praise for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Um, so... Uh, we're going to start by just considering what is a covenant. So that, you know, we talked about this term covenant of grace. So what, what is a covenant? Um, and at a very basic level, a covenant is basically just a promise to do or to not do a particular act. So I, I looked up, so I'm a lawyer, I have a law dictionary, um, and there's a definition of covenant in there. Black's Law Dictionary defines it as a formal agreement or promise, usually in a contract or a deed, to do or to not do a particular act a compact or stipulation. So there's your legal definition. Um, So it sounds, it's similar to a contract, um, covenant, but in both cases, you know, you're promising to do something. Um, But there's actually a a critical difference between a contract and a covenant, at least, you know, as we use those terms today in our legal system. So um, a contract, uh, the general rule is that for a contract to be valid, both parties have to be obligated to do something. So there's, there's sort of a, a mutually agreed upon you know, exchange of, of promises. Uh, so uh, for example, let's say I say to John, you know, John, you know what? I'm in a good mood. Come see me tomorrow. I promise I'll give you $500. So John shows up and, uh, and asks for his 500 bucks tomorrow, and I tell him to get lost. Um, thing is, like the courts would agree with me that I have no legal obligation to pay John because it was just a purely voluntary promise. Uh, I didn't get anything in exchange for my promise to give him 500 bucks. And so even though it would be a very dishonest thing, and I would not recommend this, and if you have a lawyer, there's probably ways to get around this. But, um, but ultimately, the, the kind of basic proposition of a contract is that there's something given in exchange for something else. And so that, just a voluntary promise, wouldn't satisfy that. 
Um, a covenant is different. A covenant is an oath, and while a covenant may include uh, you know, mutual promises for both parties to do something, its validity does not depend on whether that's true. So you can have a covenant that's completely unilateral and voluntary and say, I promise to do something. Under covenant ideas, that would be a valid and binding promise. Mm -hmm. And so we don't usually make many of these today, but the place where you do still see uh, covenants is in marriage. So the validity of a marriage agreement doesn't depend on, you know, whether they, I mean, there is the mutual exchange of vows, but the validity of the marriage doesn't depend on whether each party is like getting something in return for committing to the marriage. It's a covenant commitment of love. Um, and, that, and I think actually, you know, a lot of marriages maybe run on the rocks because they start kind of veering into the idea of a contract idea, where like, what am I getting out of this marriage? Um, but ultimately, a marriage is still where we see these covenants made that are binding uh, promises. Um, you know, that, that's what the, this idea for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, like, it doesn't really matter what I'm getting out of it. This is a covenant commitment. Um, and thank God that he does not contract with us, right? He, he covenants with us because what does man have to offer God in return? Um, God's created everything. That's what Romans 11 says, that who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Like, so we have nothing to offer God that could make his promises any more binding or, you know, nothing that could, that could, I guess, promote the validity of his covenant. He covenants with us, and that's based entirely on his character and on, on, his, on just his faithfulness to it. So 2 Timothy 2.13 says, even if we're faith, faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so that's, that's the character of our God. So th that's sort of the basic idea of a covenant and uh, there are two fundamental covenants that God has made with people. Um, there's the covenant of works, and there's the covenant of grace. Uh, now, you won't see these two terms in the Bible. Uh, God enters into covenants. We see that very clearly, but the Bible doesn't expressly label them covenant of works, covenant of grace. It's sort of similar to how we approach the idea of the Godhead. We, we call God the Trinity, but you don't see the word Trinity in the Bible. It's just what we're doing is we're thinking up a word that describes what the Bible reveals to us about God. So we see that God is one, and we see that God has three persons. So we say, okay, we're going to affirm these things that we see, and we're going to call this the Trinity, even though that word isn't in there. It's the same idea with the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Like that, Those terms aren't in there, but we see that when God, and we're going to look at this, but we, we see that when God creates man, he first is interacting with him in this covenant of works, and then after that, we see that the basis for God's interaction with man shifts, and so we call that the covenant of grace. And so we're going to be focusing mostly today on the covenant of grace, but we're going to actually start by looking at the covenant of works so that we can understand it and to see its significance. So if you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Um, see, this is where we get the idea of the covenant of works. This is immediately after God has created man. And someone could read Genesis chapter 2, verses 9 and 16 and 17. Thanks. And so, just to summarize then, we have the, God's created this entire garden. There's two trees, tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. But God commands Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, let's think about this in covenant terms. Who would be the covenanting parties here that we see in these verses? Why would we call this the covenant of works, I guess? So God's, God's sort of implicitly initiated this covenant with Adam by saying, here's, here's this garden, and here's how we're going to interact with this garden. You can have everything you want, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So 
and we just kind of got at this. What's, what's the condition, then, that God places in this covenant? In other words, what, what does man have to do or not do? Not eat of the tree. Right, not eat of the tree. So you can, eat, you can do everything else, just don't eat. This is the one condition, don't eat of the tree. What is the benefit of fulfilling that condition that we see in these, in these passages? What's that? Life. Yeah, life. So the tree, of the, the tree of life was in the garden. That's what I think is so interesting about this passage. It points out, like, not only is this tree that you can't eat from there, but the tree of life is there. And the, the Bible makes clear that, you know, if you're in the garden, like, you can eat of the tree of life and be in continual communion with God. So the benefit of obeying the covenant is eternal communion with God. And what's the, what's the curse, then, of, of disregarding the covenant? You will surely die, yeah. And so that's, that's why we call this the covenant of works. It's, it, again, it's not there, it, it doesn't use the word covenant, but it's certainly there that God has made a promise and that there's benefits and curses to keep from keeping or violating this promise. And so we've studied this over the last few weeks. Um, we know our first parents, they violated the condition. They were there in perfection, and they ate of the tree, notwithstanding the fact that God told them not to. And so they fell out of their perfect state with God. Um, God fulfilled the curse that was in this covenant, and we're now living with the consequences of lost communion with God, and we justly deserve his condemnation. And so by Genesis chapter 3, I just think it's, I mean, like, this is Genesis chapter 3 right here in the Bible. (laughs) Here's the covenant of works here, and actually a lot of this is prefatory material. And this is going to be the covenant of grace, like the entire rest of the Bible, right? (laughs) So... That's by the time that we, you know, have creation. It's we're, we've quickly fallen out of the covenant of works, and so now, and we've talked about this doctrine of original sin, where now you know we don't really desire the things of God, and we certainly have no means of obtaining them through the covenant of works because we all now have this stain of sin that came from uh, this initial fall. So th- this is the covenant of works. Questions about that or comments before we move on to the covenant of grace. So the great news of the Bible is that God does not leave us in this hopeless state. I think it's important just to think about that because he certainly could have. Like, no, there's, no, there's no external thing that prevented him from just saying, well, I told you so. Like, right? But praise God that that's not his character and that he, he acts to, to help and to save man. So God begins unfolding his eternal plan of redemption and reconciliation immediately. And he does this through uh, establishing a new covenant. And so when we talk about the covenant of grace, you'll see on your handout, there's actually all these, oops, all these sub-covenants that are sort of listed here. The covenant of grace is basically just God's general you know, orientation with man, and it gets reflected in all these covenants that we're going to be talking about. But the covenant of grace essentially encompasses all of them, and it's just how God deals with man. And so the first place where we see the covenant of grace is the protoevangelium. Uh, also, you'd say the protoevangel or the protoevangelium, which I've been favoring this week. Um, you can ask my wife; she's been having to deal with this. <laughs> yes, I did turn it into a rap song. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, even as God was um, announcing judgment at the fall, He was already doing something new. So we're in Genesis chapter three now. Uh, and we've studied Genesis 3.15, and we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but if someone could just read Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Yeah. So the reason they call this the protoevangelium is that this, that word means first gospel. So this is the first proclamation of the gospel. Um, and obviously it's in very, you know, sketchy kind of outline terms, but as we've studied, it is, it is there that God is saying that he is going to ultimately take care of this problem of sin, and that the, Satan's time is, is limited. He's going, he's going to raise up the offspring of woman to bruise uh, Satan's head, which is you know, a mortal blow to the head. Um, and so this is ultimately foreshadowing Jesus' death on the cross, uh, when it talks about this, the bruise on the heel and the bruise of the head, I, I thought Hebrews two fourteen and 15 says that Jesus became a man so that through death, like this bruise on the heel, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Um, and notice that God is giving this promise. Even, I mean, just think about the pain of the fall and how disappointed he must have been in seeing that this all happen and all work out. I mean, he, God knows it, but that doesn't change the fact that he would have, this would have been a painful thing. But even then he's saying, but I've already got a plan. He's already initiating this covenant of grace. And so as soon as man falls out of the covenant of works, we enter into this period of the covenant of grace. Um, yeah, and so this passage obviously leaves a lot of questions unanswered, um, but it should lead us to praise God, I think, that immediately he had begun working out his grace in, in human history. So this is the protoevangelium, or you know, the first gospel. Any questions about this before we move on to some of these other covenants? Okay, moving on. Um, so we next see God working out uh, the covenant of grace in the time of Noah. This is Genesis chapter 6. Um, Noah lived uh, about a thousand years after Adam and Eve based on the um, genealogy that they give in Genesis. Um, and by this time, the effects of the fall were very obvious. So someone could read Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Yeah. You see how far man has fallen. Remember in Genesis one thirty one, God takes a look at creation, which includes man, and he says it was very good. And now he's gotten to the point where he says that he's regretted that he's made man, that it, it grieves him in his heart, and he's sorry he's made him. So just you know, just as a quick aside, just be wary of the deceptiveness of sin, like. Satan didn't promise that at the, at the fall, right? Like, this is, this is how sin continues, and, and just every inclination of man's heart was sinful within a thousand years after the, the fall for everyone. So just, just an aside, but Chris, could you read verse 8 then? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah. Uh, so favor also, could also be translated grace. Um, Verse 9 says that Noah was a, a righteous man, blameless in his generation, that he walked with God. Um, this doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. No one but Christ can claim that. But it does mean that Noah followed God. And as we're going to see, God's then going to graciously spare Noah and his family uh, from this impending judgment. Uh, could someone, uh, I guess Chris, stick with you. Could you read verses 17 through 19? For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. 19 also? Yeah, 19 too. Thanks. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. It shall be male and female. Yeah. So, the, so God is going to... It, this covenant begins with God's promise that he's going to spare Noah's life. He's going to bring these animals onto the ark. And you, know, you see the word covenant there in verse 18. So here's, here we actually see God saying he's going to establish his covenant. And so in making and keeping this promise, God is also keeping his promise um, during the proto-evangelium, right? That, he's go, that the seed of Eve is going to crush the serpent's head. He's keeping the seed of Eve alive, sustaining the seed of Eve even through the flood. And so if God had completely wiped out the earth, you know, that wouldn't have happened. So God is again keeping his promises and he's extending grace to Noah. Uh, and note that God doesn't stop there. So after the flood um, and God spares Noah and his family's life, God then goes and makes these promises of a general nature to, in all of humanity. So look at chapter, the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. Uh, you'll see that Noah sacrifices to God, and and God then responds uh, and says, you know, "I'm never, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the, even though it's for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So this is a general promise that all of humanity is going to benefit from. We're not going to have another flood. We're going, we are going to have continuation of seasons, each in their time. And then it continues in the chapter 9 where God adds protections for man. Says so he's going to require uh, a reckoning for uh, man's life because man is made in God's image. He says he's put the fear of, of man into the animals. He gives the animals to man for food. And then he commands man to be fruitful and to multiply. And so all of these are God's gracious provision for man after the flood. And again, you know, I think the thing that we want to continue emphasizing and, and recognizing is that God was under no obligation to do any of this. Even as it relates to man generally, the entire, uh, the entire basis for this is God's good grace. Remember, he could have wiped out the entire world, but this, this is God's grace to humanity. And so that's, as we're talking about God's covenants and the covenant of grace, we're always going to see God reaching out and giving sinful man undeserved favor. And so this is, I guess, the first you know, formal covenant where we see that happening. Um, questions, comments about the Noahic covenant? <coughs> So the next place where we see the covenant of grace unfolding is in the life of Abraham. And this is, this is a major step. So Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to start. And, it, and it, as the Bible relates it, basically the promises that God makes to Abraham are unfolded in essentially three different places. So I, I've listed on my hand as three phases. I'm not actually sure that's a you know, theological term, but it was helpful for me to think about that there's three places where God makes these promises to Abraham. It, thank you, yes. <laughs> thank you, I <laughs> appreciate it. Um, uh, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, someone could go ahead and read that, please. So God tells Abraham he's going to have land, he's going to have offspring, and that he's going to have this unique blessing that's going to be for his family. It's going to extend to the entire earth somehow through his family. Uh, what is the condition for Abraham receiving these promises? What, is, what has Abraham done to deserve them? Nothing. Yeah, zero. Nothing. Right? Like God just reaches out to Abraham. And as Garrett was talking about recently, Abraham was part of a pagan culture, so there's like no necessarily particular reason why God would reach out to Abraham other than, again, this is just God reaching out across the void and graciously extending his favor to someone of his choosing. Um, there's nothing that Abraham could do uh, to deserve this, and there's nothing that Abraham could do to, to lose it, because it's God's, it's God's unilateral, unconditional promise. Um, it does come with this response, which, you know, we've talked about how faith and, and action go together. And so Abraham responds to God by going uh, to the land that God's going to lead him to. And this is where we then enter into phase two of, of the covenant. So this is Genesis chapter 15. And the second phase is, it begins with a conversation between uh, God and Abraham. God reminds Abraham of the promises that he made in chapter 12, uh, the land and the, and the offspring. And Abraham asks how this is going to happen, given that he has no children. And uh, in verses 2 through 5, God tells Abraham that he's going to have a son, and his offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars. And then notice verse 6. Uh, actually, could someone read verse 6 of chapter 15? Right, And that is what we're going to see is that the continual response to the covenant of grace is this response of faith. That there's nothing that, there's no work that, like there was you know, at the beginning of creation where you warrant God's favor. It's just a response of faith and then God counts it as righteousness. So that's Abraham's response. Uh, then Abraham asks how he can know that he will possess the land that God has promised him. 
And like it would have been, I think, totally appropriate for God to say, because I said so, like, let's move on. <laughs> but he doesn't. Um, and this is, uh, we're now in verse 8. Uh, and, and so God responds to Abraham by saying, bring me these animals, a heifer, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so uh, Abraham brings these, he cuts these animals in half, he lays them apart from each other and sort of sets up this pathway of these uh, split animals. Um, and so we've got this ceremony all set up, and now God is going to respond to Abram's question, how do I know, how can I know that you know, we're going to possess the land? And so this is verse 12. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God puts Abram into the sleep, and then he tells him what's going to happen. And now, in verse, starting in verse 17, he's going to formalize the covenant. So when the, in verse 17 now, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And they list the, the peoples that are in this land. So the ceremony is sort of odd. Um, you know, the idea was that by passing through these split animals, you're sort of saying, at least people who did these covenants were saying, you know, may the same thing that happened to these animals happen to me if I violate this covenant. So it's a very formal process of, of saying that you can rely on what I'm going to say. Um, and the main point here is that God was entering into this covenant with Abram. Notice that Abram didn't walk down the aisle. God's <laughs> unilaterally doing this. So if someone can flip over to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. The author of Hebrews gives a little bit more color on, on what's going on here. Uh, someone can, can just read that when you have it. Hebrews six thirteen through 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Um, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Yeah, amen. So the way I thought about this, and this is not in the Bible, but it's a bit like Superman uh, allowing himself to be handcuffed by the authorities in Man of Steel. So like, he wants to show he's going to cooperate, and so there's a scene where he's walking down, he's like in these handcuffs, and like obviously the handcuffs do nothing to impose an additional restraint on whatever Superman wants to do. And so there's actually this conversation where Lois asked Superman why he allowed himself to be handcuffed, and his response is that he just it makes them feel more secure. And so that's really what God is doing by taking this oath on. Is that like God's already promised that he's going to do this, but by taking this oath on and, and making it a formal aspect, he's he's really it's for our benefit that we know by this unchangeable thing, which it's impossible for God to lie, but he's also like gone through the actual process of making a unilateral covenant. His promises are sure. And so as, as the author of Hebrews say, uh, we, who for, we who for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Um, so that's, I don't know, that's how I thought about it. But um, so note, and you know, we already talked about Abraham's response. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And these weren't just, you know, words. What we saw in the previous chapter is that Abraham had actually, you know, pursued, Lot had been taken, his nephew Lot had been taken captive by a, a king. And Abraham pursued this king, defeated him, brought Lot back. And Lot's king was saying, you know, Abraham, why don't you keep all the spoils since, you know, you did this? And Abraham says, no, 
I, I don't want you to be able to say that you made me rich. Like, I'm going to put my faith in God, and I'm going to, I want the glory to go to God is essentially the, the response there. And so this is the, the faith response to God's unilateral covenant. Okay, so this is phase two. I guess that was a lot. So any questions, comments on phase two of the covenant? We're going to, there's a third phase, but, okay. Uh, so the, the third and final phase of this Abrahamic covenant comes when Abraham is 99 years old. It's Genesis chapter 17. And here is where we probably see the most specific statement of the covenant of grace so far. Uh, the passage is going to begin by reiterating what we've seen already, the promises of land and promises of offspring. Uh, but verses 7 through 14 add a new dimension uh, that we haven't really seen before. I'd like, uh, well, for time's sake, I think maybe we won't read the entire passage. Uh, but could someone read verse 7, Genesis 17, verse 7? So what's different about this? What, what new aspect do we learn about God's covenant of grace from this verse? <laughs> Everlasting? Okay. Yep. What is God doing? What is God, doing, uh, what is God promising that's a little bit a little bit different than what he said before. So in the past was kind of established with Abraham and now he's moving to all his offspring forever. Yeah, so so we see God distinguishing a people for himself, right? Like before they've been God God had reached out to Abraham before, but now he's saying what what is so the the end of the verse there says uh, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God has now um, in a sense, sort of created like a church. Like he said, these are going to be my people, and this is go- who I'm going to work with. Um, so there's now a special people of God, and the rest of this passage talks about the sign uh, that God's going to uh, have with his people for this covenant, which is circumcision. Um, uh, but, you know, the covenant was established before the circumcision occurred, and so God uh, had reached out to set this people apart for himself. And we see that he's going to continue doing this. Even within Abraham's family, he's going to choose uh, one of his children, Isaac, not Ishmael, who Abraham thought was going to be the child of the promise. And then even for Isaac's children, he's going to choose Jacob and not Esau. And so we see God sovereignly choosing to reach out and to say, these are, I'm going to use these people to uh, be my special people. But recall then what we saw in chapter, in chapter 12, the first phase of the covenant, that this promise to Abraham was going to be used through this people to then be extended to the entire world somehow. And so what we learn is that this is all, God's going to set apart this covenant people so that he can reveal things about himself and then through Christ extend his grace to the entire world. Um, And again, what did Abraham do to deserve this? Nothing. Um, He did nothing to earn the covenant. And this is the major contrast from the covenant of works. I hope that we're seen now is that you know at at creation the way that you got God's blessing was you didn't eat from the tree there was something that you could do to earn this communion with God here there's just nothing that Abraham can do the circumcision happens after God's made the promise it's entirely just God reaching out again across the void that's created by sin and saying I'm extending special favor to you Uh, this is what you know, Romans 3, Galatians 3, Hebrews 11 are all talking about our response of, of faith and how uh, there is nothing that we do to earn God's favor. Um, so, the, yeah. so this is what this is essentially the covenant of grace, that God reaches out, he selects a people for himself sovereignly, and, and he extends a special favor to them. Uh, questions about the Abrahamic covenant or comments on, on how it relates to the covenant of grace. Anything before we move on? Yeah. Just in, in verse um, 8, it's a great encouragement where he says it's an everlasting possession. Yeah. This is for everlasting. Yeah. It, it 
not temporal. Yeah. 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 Everlasting and unconditional, right? Like right. it's just like it's entirely reliant on God forever. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts? Okay. Um, the final major covenant action that we're going to be looking at is the covenant with Moses, um, or the Mosaic covenant, or the, the law. Uh, so we're going to flip over to Exodus chapter 19 now. And while we're doing that, so Abraham's son Isaac had a son named Jacob, whom God renamed Israel. Israel's 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Bible describes how God brought these men to Egypt, how God multiplied their families, and they were eventually put into bondage for 400 years in Egypt, just as he promised during this covenant ceremony in phase two of the Abrahamic covenant. And just as God promised... He brought the Israelites out of bondage, and he's, they emerged now as a nation. They've been multiplying, and they had lots of possessions, uh, and they began a, a trek to the land that God had then promised uh, their ancestor, Abraham. Um, and so as Israel's embarking on this trek to go to the promised land, they stop at Mount Sinai, and here is where God takes another major step in, in implementing the covenant of grace. So if someone could read Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, this is a summary of the covenant. Thanks. So let's start with some differences. What's different about this covenant from the Abrahamic covenant? These are climate regimes. Yeah. So it's conditional, right? It says, if. What's this? Yeah. If you will indeed obey my voice. Um, and who is who is this covenant made to? We kind of got at this, but it's. It's made to an entire nation. It's not now made to a single patriarch or to a family. So, so it's conditional. There's condi- there's, if you obey, there's blessings. If you disobey, there's curses. And we see these blessings and curses listed in Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you kind of want an elaboration. And it's made to a nation, uh, not just a patriarch. And, and so you know, there's, I think, a, a temptation to then say, well, wait, what does God do? Like, has he gone back on his... On his promise, and so I think it's important to to figure out what God is doing here um, and how this relates to the Abrahamic covenant. Because um, remember, this also accompanied this. We read the, just a summary of the covenant, but like Exodus, Deuteronomy, like these are this has this huge, massive law, just all these requirements uh, governing basically all aspects of society. And so, what I want to be really clear about is that in giving the law, God was not reestablishing a covenant of works. Um, I mean, that, that would just like, wouldn't really make any sense as an initial matter because the covenant of works, remember, we failed that all the way back in Genesis 3 when we were perfect. So like adding more rules to a less perfect people wouldn't really do anything to fix the problem, right? So in Galatians three seventeen and 18 speaks to this specifically. It says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no lo- it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So it would be completely inconsistent for God to go back. And that's not actually what he's doing. Um, the Mosaic Covenant was a, the way I think it was, a subsidiary covenant to the fundamental covenant of grace. It's part of that covenant. So the, the, what's it, what God promises to Abraham is never at stake in this covenant. These are still God's special people, regardless of whether they obey or disobey. But there are... What God's doing here is for this nation, where he's building up this nation, his people, he's going to regulate all aspects of their life. We're going to look in just a second at why he does that. But he's going to regulate all aspects of their life, and he's going to uh, provide a law and say, if you obey this law, there's going to be blessings for you, temporal blessings, abundance, good things. If you disobey this law, I'm going to discipline you. There's going to be curses. And for his nation, for his set-apart people... This all happens within the Abrahamic covenant because they are his people, but now he's regulating his people. And so this is now what the Mosaic covenant is, is doing and what the law is doing. Um, so let's, actually, that, that's an important point. So let's, yeah. Any? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think this is, I think you're right on. This is, 
he's telling them how you get to enjoy the covenant that I made with Abraham. Yeah. So he said, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to bless you. And if you want to live in that land, and you want to enjoy my blessing of protection and provision and my presence, then you need to obey. Yeah. If you disobey, then I'm going to kick you out of the land, and I'm going to give you over to other gods where you're going to see what it's like to not live under my rule. Hmm. So it's, it's basically telling them how do you how do you get to enjoy all the promises that I, that I made to Abraham. Awesome. Thanks. Um, yeah, and so the, the thing I want to consider now is how does the law then fit within the broader covenant of grace? And I think there's a couple ways that, that it does this. So first, the law structures the society of God's people. So it has moral components, which talk about you know, what is right and wrong. This, this exists across generations, across governments, across peoples. What, what is right and wrong? Uh, it has civil components, which is sort of like you know, the laws that you know, we have that govern our day-to-day lives, like, you know, if you steal, what's the consequence of that? that you know, these civil components that structure the society. And then it has ceremonial components about how we relate to God, how we worship God. Um, so God's regulating literally every aspect of, of life, and it all is flowing from him and from his character. And so I think the first thing we need to recognize about the law is that it, it tells us about God. It tells Israelites about God, and it tells other people who are in the Israelite society about who God is. Um, but in the covenant of grace, it also has a couple other specific purposes for us and for the Israelites, which is uh, Romans 3.20 says, first of all, that the law first and primarily highlights Israel's and our need for grace. It exposes our consciousness of sin, or it increases our consciousness of sin. We now have this huge law, and now we know all the different ways that we violate it, right? Um, and so it, it points to our need for a savior, and, and that's the second and related point, is that it ultimately then leads us to Christ and points to him. Uh, Paul describes the law, the Mosaic law, as a guardian until Christ came, uh, it's, and, to, and when Christ came and served as the ultimate and final sacrifice. So you know, the, the thing I want to make clear is that the Israelites were not saved in a different way under the law than they are now. Everything ultimately flows through Christ. Um, and we see this in numerous places in, in the New Testament. Um, but like you know, what what they what these uh, sacrifices and circumcision and you know promises ceremonies are all doing is pointing forward, uh, and this is why Hebrews eight five says they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And from when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, "See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." So God wants everything to be perfect so that it can point forward to show what he's going to do in the future. But ultimately, God's grace was necessary. Hebrews 9.9 says that the gifts and sacrifices that were offered themselves cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Um, What was supposed to be happening is that the Israelites were, again, um, in reflection of their faith, acting in response to God and relying on God's grace um, as a sinful people to forgive them by obeying the law. Um, and it was difficult because the law was very rigorous and required constant attention. And so uh, it's supposed to produce this longing for a final sacrifice, perfect sacrifice that fulfills the law, that, takes, that fixes this all. And that ultimately, as we know, is, is Jesus who lives the perfect life, who fulfills the law and then sacrifices himself for our sake. And that's why we don't do these animal sacrifices anymore. Um, but for people who live before Jesus... You know, it's maybe helpful to think of grace as something that Garrett said before that I found helpful. Uh, grace is essentially being extended on credit to them um, from Christ. While for, for we who live after Christ, it's, it's more of like a debit transaction. But it's all ultimately drawn from the same account, right? It's all ultimately Christ who satisfies God's righteous wrath. And it's all ultimately Christ who allows us to have the access to the Father. And that's true for the for the Old Testament and for the New Testament. This is what Galatians 3, 7 through 14 um, is, is getting at. I'm not going to read that, but you know, it's, it's good reading. So uh, I, think, I think that is it for that I, all that I have for the Mosaic Covenant. But are there any questions, comments on, on the law um, and on what God was doing with this nation of Israel? signs for both of them. He gave 
take the circumcision as a reminder that through your offspring the Messiah is going to come, and then he gives the, the Sabbath as the sign mm. for the Mosaic Covenant, and how prone we are to just get hung up on keeping the, the external symbols mm. while missing the heart of it, which yeah. is it's supposed to produce faith, but Israel's whole life is all about like, well, are you circumcised and do you keep the Sabbath? And they just focus on the signs so much and miss the heart of what God was intending to stir in them, which is faith and trust. Yeah. Um, I just think that yeah, we're, we're prone to do the same same kinds of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Thanks. Yep. Um, do you have a question? Well, I just, I teach kids, and what I tend to say is, tell me if I'm wrong, these laws are there to show us how far we fall from what God wants us to be and show us our real need for Jesus? Is that wrong or is that right? No, yeah, that, that's, that's what the Bible says. <laughs> yeah. That, that, it increases, increases our knowledge of, of our shortcomings. Yeah. It, it points, leads us to Christ. Yeah. yeah. Never thought about what you just said. Yeah. yeah. Um, wait, that's my mom, by the way. Hi, Mom. <laughs> 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 Yeah. Um, all right, so we're going to just quickly touch on, on the Davidic covenant. Um, this is 2 Samuel 7. You don't, you don't need to turn there, but um, God, God basically covenants with David that he's going to give him a lasting kingdom, uh, that it's, his, his line is going to be everlasting, he's going to establish his house forever. Um, and this is another example of the specific means that God is implementing his plan of redemption um, ultimately, it shows that Jesus, the one who's going to have the eternal kingdom, is going to come from David's line. Uh, and so it's, it's very important for us in, in understanding the messianic prophecies, understanding who, who Jesus is, what God's doing. Uh, but the, ultimately, this Davidic covenant occurs under the rubric of the Mosaic covenant, right? The law is still in place at this time, um, and, and things have changed a little bit. Like, there's a king now instead of uh, God serving as the king, but ultimately God's ultimate relationship with humanity and, and his covenant has not really substantially changed. So it's, it's a definite example of God's grace to David and ultimately God's grace to us and giving us Christ through David. Uh, but in terms of figuring out, you know, how is God relating and, and developing this covenant of grace, I'd, I'd say, you know, it's, it's actually probably not a, a central focus um, of that discussion. So any questions about that? It is an example of grace, and it's a very important covenant, just not for this particular discussion. And so ultimately, the covenant of grace is completed in Christ. Um, it's contemplating the gospel. God actually accomplishes the work of redemption and reconciliation uh, by taking the punishment that we deserve on himself. Um, the covenant of grace in the Old Testament is only possible because of the gospel. It anticipates the gospel. That's what like John, 8, 50, John 8, verse 56 says that Abraham was, you know, looking toward my day. Um, Hebrews 11.13 says that the patriarchs were anticipating these promises. And so, you know, and it's, just, it's cool that after we've gone through this, the covenant of grace and seen how it's worked itself out, I mean, so Jesus is the descendant of Eve, of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. He died on the cross after fulfilling the Mosaic law. He crushed Satan's head, the protoevangelium. He purchased a chosen people for himself. He freed us from the law, and he made a possible eternal life with God, free from the effects of sin. So salvation is ultimately by grace through faith in Christ. And this is where the entire covenant of grace in the Old Testament is leading up to and pointing to. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately I had to focus on the Old Testament so I don't get to like dwell there for too long. But that's, that's, what this, that's how it happens. That's what it's all ultimately about. Um, and so the final thing I want to just pause on is how then, and this is a question for you, how should we respond to the fact that God was working out this covenant of grace in the Old Testament from the fall. What, is, what should our response be? I think one response would be worship. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that was Paul's response, right? So he, he reflects on God's plan. And then in Romans eleven thirty three says, 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Like that's, it's just like Paul just like erupts in praise to God for like seeing how he's been working this out this entire time. Um, and, you know, I, I just I don't think that we would necessarily have that same sense of of praise if he, if he had just sent Jesus immediately after the fall, right? But we see how God's been doing this faithfully and how he's had this plan. Sorry, there was another hand that went up. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what we're supposed to see here. Is in the covenant of grace, like there's this gap between God and man that's created by sin, and it's God that's reaching across that gap to us. I just, I just that I don't know. That, that as I've been studying this passage this week, that's been the continual thing that's been coming to my mind is just God taking the initiative out of love and out of grace and reaching out. Um, and that's that's the continual story that we see. So, John, I, I think of just humility. One, one of the passages that um, is on the handout as, as a reflection here, and it's sort of an odd one, is, is from Genesis 6 where God is talking about the fallenness of, of man. And what the intent there is is just to reflect on the fact that this is so not about us. Like we, we, uh, we are fallen, and, like, and you see in, in this passage here in Genesis 6 like just the extent of that fall. And so as John was just saying, the humility that should accompany that and... Uh, and yeah, just the, the grace of, the, you know, the magnification of the grace of God um, in that. Uh, that. That's what that's intended to get, is just that we should recognize that we are fallen, and it's by a huge act of grace that we are made to come into relationship with God. Sorry. Yeah, I, I loved also the way that you brought out how the Mosaic Covenant 
was there to show us that fallenness. Mm -hmm. It was if we had to count on ourselves and our own ability to keep the law, mm -hmm. game over. Right. Yeah. But it was because of grace. Yeah. And so, yeah, it did a really great job of that. Chinese you. Um, yeah, I, I would. So the thing that I was thinking about was, yeah, Peter, like you said, so that the law given is is ultimately a failed way back to God. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. It's a failed passageway, not because of, of anything wrong with the, the giving of that law. The giving of the law was gracious, but because of our transgression, because mm -hmm. of human weakness. Yeah. But then, as we see God's graciousness in the new covenant, he gives us his spirit. Mm -hmm. And so our obedience is no longer external, but he, by his grace, gives us the ability yeah. to obey by his spirit. And yeah. so in that, like we still see God's grace in initiating and giving us the spirit yeah. to just belong that tenor of the covenant of grace. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah, and Johnny's going to be, you're, you're doing the continuity of the law, right? So yeah, make sure come for Johnny's session on that. I'm really interested in learning more about that, too. So, um, um, yeah, so a couple other things, and we're going to wrap up in just a second, but uh, the other thing that I think that Hebrews makes clear is that one thing that, that the covenant of grace is supposed to do in us is just to give us confidence in God's promises. Again, he could have sent Christ immediately, but then we wouldn't have seen how he's faithful to his promises over the course of this long period of time and how he's working out this plan. And so Hebrews, again, 6, uh, we stopped at 18 before. I'm going to do 18 and 19. Uh, it says, I'm, I'm just going to kind of pick it up there. So, so that by two unchangeable things, remember the, God's promises and the covenant, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So it's, it's intended to uh, have us put our, our faith in Christ and just be confident that when God promises something, he is going to work it out. Um, and that, that applies you know, both to the ultimate plan of salvation and it applies to, to everything else that, that he does. That we can have confidence that God um, you know, knows what he's doing um, uh, in our lives and, and in history more broadly. So, uh, yeah. Any final <coughs> questions, comments? Good question. So you mean by God? So, so uh, you know, the covenant of works, man violated the covenant of works. That was a conditional covenant. Um, and the Mosaic covenant, which was another conditional covenant, uh, man did not, like Israel did not fully obey the Mosaic law. And so Israel received the curses from that covenant. God has never broken a covenant. Um, and none of them, not, I want to be careful here. So the, the Bible, the New Testament talks about the covenant under Christ as a new covenant and the Mosaic covenant as an old covenant. And what that means is that the, the covenant of grace, remember the covenant of grace includes all of these covenants. This is just God's general relationship, how he interacts with man. And so the way that the covenant of grace is administered before Christ comes is changed when Christ comes. Because Christ fulfills the Mosaic law and sets us free from its requirements. So in that sense, it's, it's replaced by, by Christ's righteousness. But that's, there's, that's not a violation of the covenant. It's, sort of, it's a new covenant, and it's all within the same covenant of, of grace. So we were kind of using the word covenant in different ways here. But the, the ultimate point is that, no, God has never violated a covenant, um, and God hasn't repealed it. He has, though, uh, with the Mosaic covenant, replaced it with this new covenant under Christ because Christ has now fulfilled that that older covenant. Does that, does that make sense? It's, again, as, as Garrett said, we're kind of in the, in the deep end here a little bit, but basically the way that God interacts with man and what he asked man to do uh, is different after Christ. It's not, we're not, the way that we ask for forgiveness is not by animal sacrifice. It's the way that we ask for forgiveness is by trusting in Christ and, and relying on him for salvation. So, good question. If there's more, if that didn't answer the question, we can talk afterward too. Any, any final questions? All right, let's pray and head into the service. Uh, Father, we just give you praise, uh, as, as we've seen. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the way that you have been working out uh, this 
covenant of grace, the way that you've reached out when we had nothing to commend ourselves to you, but you showed us favor. You did this through uh, the patriarchs and ultimately um, through Christ and extended it to uh, everyone. And uh, we just give you praise and glory for that. I pray that we would have faith in you, Lord, and that we would uh, just take confidence from the fact that you've been faithful to your promises. Uh, Bless us now as we go into the service. Pray that uh, you would uh, bless Uh, pastors with the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.